Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of the poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a, a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I fail to remember you, if I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. O Lord, remember what the Edomites did on the day the armies of Babylon captured Jerusalem. Destroy it, they yelled. Level it to the ground. O Babylon, you will be destroyed. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you have done to us. Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight we'll be looking at Psalm 137 as we talk about grieving, grieving exile. Let me pray and we will take a look at this. Lord Jesus, we've asked you already, um, just as we come to your word now, as your word comes to us, I pray that uh, you would be the teacher tonight, you would be the preacher tonight, Holy Spirit, you would be the counselor, Father, you would be the leader. Make tonight personal between you and your beloved people. Make tonight personal between you and those who are here who you know intimately, but who do not know you. Would even tonight, would you speak sweet words to them? Even tonight, would you unravel the confusion and make things clear? Even tonight, Father, would you show them your power? We cannot change ourselves. The leopard cannot change his spots, but you can. So that's our hope. That's our request. That's our expectation. We pray it in Christ's name and power. Amen. Well, here's something I've been thinking about uh, lately. It's not very novel. It's not going to surprise you. You've probably thought about it too at some points, but I think that we tend to idealize the normal Christian life. Idealize it. Here's what I mean. We can, it's easy for us to slide into a way of thinking that the Christian life, if we're living it rightly, is supposed to be this kind of happy equilibrium. And if you're not feeling that happy, calm equilibrium, you're doing it wrong. You're not doing something right. Like, and so what I hear oftentimes is, is I feel it myself. I hear y'all articulate this. When we're, when we're lacking that sense of kind of that happy equilibrium, we say things like, well, I haven't been reading my Bible that much, or I need to pray more. We, we quickly get into what I'm not doing enough of, or what I need to be doing more of, or what I need to stop doing. And what it's showing is that our assumption of the normal life with God a normal life walking with Jesus in exile. Our assumption is that if we're doing it right, it's supposed to be linear and calm and happy. Because of that, whenever we get thrown off track and we feel something other than that, we go into fix-it mode. And the functional goal of our lives, even our Christian lives, becomes getting back to that mood, that feeling. But what if the day-to-day -day goal of life with God is not to maintain a mood? What if that's a bad goal in your day-to-day -day life, to maintain a happy equilibrium? 
what if, there, what if there's a better goal? What if God's goal for you day to day is simply to live faithfully wherever you are, however you're feeling, and to be alert to his faithfulness to you? What if that's the goal? This bears repeating. I think it's been said every week. It bears repeating every week. God has not prepared us to see life with him in this world as this calm, happy equilibrium. He has not told us that. He has not pegged our expectations at that place. So however it got inside of us and became our expectation, I don't know where it came from, but it did not come from him. He, this won't sound like a shock, he has told you to expect that life here will feel like an elect exile, a pilgrim, a foreigner living in a strange land will feel the pressure, the tension of Babylon. Peter goes on to say in his letter, we'll pick this up in a couple of weeks. Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that has come on you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. So it's not just an us thing. Christians all the way back have been feeling that assumption that it's supposed to be this happy, calm equilibrium. And if it's not, something strange is happening and we should be surprised and go into fix-it mode. Peter's like, don't be surprised. You're exiles. You live in Babylon. Let me add an idea to that because I've been thinking about this a lot this week. Think about this with me. Even... When the Bible even describes ideal scenarios, best case scenarios in different areas of our life, they're still really complicated and messy and hard. And that's not the way we typically think about it because, again, we typically think if I'm doing it right, it's supposed to be easy. So think with me. Matthew 18. Does that passage ring a bell to you? Matthew 18 is where Jesus basically tells Christians how to, how to approach each other when we've got beef with each other. When I've wronged you or you've wronged me. That's Matthew 18. And the gist of it is basically, uh, if a brother or sister sins against you, go and show them what they did, just the two of you. He's like, there's no need to broadcast it to everybody else. Keep it local. Just the two of you. There's a, there's a higher likelihood of this getting resolved if it's just a private conversation in love. Just the two of you go and confront each other. And if, if they listen to you, you've won them over. If they haven't, Bring some other people so that kind of, kind of brings some sobriety and objectivity. If they're not one over after that, bring the whole church. Let's say the person humbly responds to your confrontation. Let's say they say, I'm so sorry. I did not know that I did that. Or they said, I did know that I did that. And I'm heartbroken how I treated you. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? Even that, that's a best case scenario. How messy and hard is that? If you're the one who was wrong, here's what had to go into that. You noticed something didn't sit right with me about what she said or what he did. And you maybe talk it through with the wise friend, hopefully, instead of gossiping about him. And you're like, and they're like, yeah, I think that was wrong. That, that was not loving. It doesn't sound loving. So then you're like, well, what do I do about it? And that's a whole process, praying about that, talking that out. And you decide, I think... For me to love this person and prioritize a future relationship with them, I've got to go talk to them about it. And that's stressful. And then you're like, well, then when? And how do I phrase it? And where are we going to meet? And man, I'm the one that was wrong. Then I've got to approach them. So you get up the courage. You get up the nerve to text them and say, hey, 
I'd love to get together. There's something that I need your help thinking through. There's something we need to talk about. So you get up the courage. You send the text. You set up the meeting, and you actually show up to it. You don't disappear. And then you're sitting there like, okay, how am I going to do this? How are they going to respond? Again, best case scenario. How hard was that? James 5. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Sounds simple, right? How hard is that? You become increasingly convicted of a secret sin, something nobody knows about. And and the spirit has his thumb pressed right on that thing. He's like, it's time. It's time to bring helpers. I'm going to help you, but it's time to crack that closet door and let others in. And so you're just like agonizing over this, and you realize, I think I do need to, to bring somebody in. I, I need someone to know. I need help. So you think about, you know, that girl's always, I just always respected her. She's always responded really well to other people's stuff. So she's the one. And you're like, can we meet up? And you show up to the meeting, and you feel like you're coughing up a brick as you begin to unravel what had been in the dark and secret. And God brings healing to you through that. He lifts your burdens. He gives you a friend in your shame, in your suffering. Best case scenario, how hard was that? You get the point, right? Even the ideal is hard. So what is the ideal way to live in exile in Babylon, which we established last week, Jeremiah 21. That's where we, that's, that's your home address. It's where we do life. What's the ideal? What's best case scenario for living here faithfully? What does it look like? If you were here last week, um, I hope what we talked about sounded beautiful to you and compelling. I hope it did. Pray for, uh, for the pockets of people that God's put you in. Seek their prospering. When, when high tide comes to your friends or the pockets or your lab or your study group or your fraternity, when high tide comes there, your ship rises too. Seek their good. Bless them. That's part of life in exile. That's part of the ideal. But what else? Because Psalm 137 pulls the curtains a little bit wider. And it says, well, what else is included in a life well lived in exile? The best case scenario also includes weeping and deep disappointment and crying out to God in anger and grief. That's the ideal. That's best case scenario. How hard is that? Revelation 21 is this passage that's really about the end of exile. It's when this city that this psalmist keeps singing about, Jerusalem, 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 it's when the new Jerusalem descends from heaven and we don't go to heaven. Heaven comes here and puts its roots here. And the world the way it was always meant to be is finally permanently established as Jesus rules. And do you know what, uh, what one of the first things that Revelation 21 says God will do when, when, when you draw near to him in this new Jerusalem, when exile is over and you're finally home? 
He reaches out his thumb and he touches your cheek. And you know what it says he wipes away? Your wet cheeks and the tears that have been streaming down your face, which presumes you will leave this life and arrive in heaven with tears in your eyes. This is the norm. Even this disappointment and this grief, sometimes we feel it much more acutely than other times. So listen, the presence of these things, the frustration, the disappointment, the grief, the disorientation, that's not necessarily evidence that that you're doing it wrong. Remember, that's how we tend to think. It's not a happy equilibrium. I've got to fix something. Something's wrong. I'm doing it wrong. This is not necessarily evidence that you're doing it wrong. In fact, it could just be evidence of where you are in Babylon and who you are, a holy elect priest of God living in that place. So the presence of these things is more evidence of where you are and who you are than whether you're doing it right or wrong. So here's the thing that we're going to talk about as we dig a little deeper into this passage. If we're going to survive exile and be able to love our enemies and be able to endure mistreatment and being in a place that misrepresents the true and living God or dismisses him, we're going to have to learn to grieve loss and pain and disappointment and frustration. And to learn to grieve, we're at least going to have to start by realizing these are not alien intruders on our happy status quo. They are the status quo. Why? Where we live and who we are. So let's talk about grief. Here's my my big point. Grief is the kidney of the soul. Do you know what a kidney does in your body? Some of you do. Uh, A kidney filters your blood. So at any given moment, in a best case scenario, in an ideal situation, in a perfectly healthy body right now, there's millions of toxins coursing through your blood flow. But it's okay because you have two organs whose main function is to filter those toxins, to process them, and to expel them so that they don't put you in danger. That's the point of a kidney. Grief is the kidney of a soul. Filters the toxins out of our bloodstream, out of our hearts, out of our emotions even, out of our reactions to the way that we're treated. And it processes them and expels the waste. That's best case scenario. A Christian who somewhere in her life, somewhere in his life is experiencing grief is the ideal. A body without a functioning kidney doesn't survive long and a soul without functioning grief doesn't survive long. So I've been setting this up for a while, but Let's look down at the passage and say, where am I getting this and what's going on here? The first question, what provoked the grief of the exiles who wrote this song? Every song has a story behind it, at least if it's a worthwhile song. There's a story. Why'd you write it? A big breakup. Met the girl in my dreams. Met the guy in my dreams. There's a story behind every song. There's a story behind this song. What provoked 
this grief and the song that they wrote about it. What provoked the weeping by the river? Well, let's just be uh, literal. Look down at the passage. Beside the rivers of Babylon, as slaves, as exiles, as people who were kidnapped out of their home country, home culture, and deported hundreds of miles away into a foreign culture, beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept as we thought of Jerusalem. Which is not just like, oh, we missed the restaurants and the nightlife and the skyline. It was so beautiful. Really missed that place. Favorite city I've ever lived in. It's the only home that they knew. And just like we said last week, Babylon is synonymous, just kind of like Las Vegas has got the moniker of Sin City. It's synonymous with that. And Babylon is synonymous with that. Jerusalem was synonymous with that's where God lives. It's where the temple was. Jerusalem stood for intimacy with God, nearness to your maker. Sacrifices made on your behalf that you might be reconciled to him. Daily, the priest offering prayers on your behalf, intercession on your behalf. Jerusalem is where cleansing came from. Jerusalem was the gospel for these songwriters. It was a name of a city that, that meant so much more. Songwriters do this today. Ray Charles with, the, with Georgia on my mind. He's not just singing about, I love the geographic boundaries of that territory. It's what Georgia meant to him. It was home. Oh, beside the rivers of Babylon, we wept when we thought of Jerusalem and all that it meant to us. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, if I grow cold and numb to Jerusalem, let my right hand forget how to play the harp. These are musicians. These are professional musicians. These are the worship leaders of Israel, and they're saying, Jerusalem robust, forget it all. If I forget you, if I stop daydreaming about those days when I saw the priest sprinkle blood on me from the sacrificed bull and declare me innocent and clean and friend with God, if I forget that, let it all go to waste. That's what triggered the grief is remembering Jerusalem while in Babylon. Remembering home while far from home. That triggers grief. Grief is fueled, you could say, by that agonizing gap between the way you know things should be and the way things are. Or to put it another way, grief is fueled by loving and remembering the good. God grieves. Genesis chapter 6. Yahweh, the Lord, saw the wickedness of man that had become great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. The spirit that we're introduced to in Scripture is a spirit capable of being grieved because he of all people knows the way this place is supposed to be and what you were made for. He remembers. He's not emotionally distant and indifferent. 
God is, is a God who is grieved because God is a God who cares and remembers the good. Jesus is grieved. Jesus is known as the man of sorrows. Jesus is expressing grief and grieving throughout his entire life. Jesus grieved his family life. They don't understand me. Who are my mother and my father and my brothers and my sisters? Those who obey me. Jesus grieved over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you would not listen. You wouldn't come to me. Jesus wanted this Jerusalem, the city of God, to come to him in repentance and faith. But they didn't. And so it grieved him. The prophet Jeremiah who wrote Jeremiah 29 also wrote a little book called Lamentations. In other words, a a songbook of just extended grief. Why? Because Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians, sacked the city of God. You grieve. Some of you, when your parents got divorced, finally realized how precious marriage is. how safe it made you, how much stability and form and direction it gave to your life because now in its absence, it's ripped your heart in two. Some of you grieve the loss of a mom or a dad, a brother, a sister, a best friend, and the the depth of your grief for them is a testimony to the world of how much you loved them, how good they were. Grief is fueled by a memory of goodness. Grief is fueled by that agonizing gap between the way things were intended to be and meant to be and made to be by God and the way that they've devolved to because of sin and evil. Do you grieve? Is there anybody here tonight who scans the totality of their life and there's no grief? It's easy for us to think, well, man, that's a mark of maturity. I'm happy. I'm buoyant. I'm hopeful. I'm joyful. I thought that's what Christians were supposed to be. But again, I say this gently, but could what we mistake to be a mark of maturity actually be a mark of not knowing the good or remembering the good? What does it say about our hearts when they're not torn in two, when we see how far things have fallen from the ideal, how far... We are from the way we were made to be. There's a trigger. There's a provoking, triggering circumstance that happens in this psalm that that triggered the grief of the Israelites too. It's talked about in verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. We put away our harps. We we, we put them down. We weren't in the mood to sing anymore. Why? Our captors, our enslavers, these godless Babylonians were mocking us. They're like, hey, hey, um, Play us that, that, that cute little song y'all sing about the gospel, about how your God is king and supreme over all the other nations. Yeah, we, play us that one. We love that one of how your God wins all the time, how he's the only true and living God and not Marduk or our gods. Play us that one. We love that song. And they are grieved because they remember human beings are made in the very image of the God that you mock. The very God that you absolutely know down in your bones exists. The very God you absolutely know down in your bones you will give an answer to. And they were grieved. How can we sing a song? How can we sing one of those hymns in the midst of a pagan land? One of those songs of Jerusalem. One of those songs of the Lord. How? We're not going to go along with a joke. 
We're not going to throw out more fodder for your mockery of the God who made you. They remembered the good, and it fueled their grief of what had come of it. So what are we to do with this today? What are we to do with this psalm? In whatever circumstances you are living in and grieving, and maybe before a few minutes ago, you didn't slap the label grief on it or grieving, but maybe now you're willing to. You're like, that's lost. That's sad. That, that does put words to what I've been feeling, the, the gap uh, between the community that I know I was made for and the community that's supposed to exist in the church or in the Christian community and the gap that I feel from that. Or the gap you feel between the mental health you know you were made for and the mental health you experience. What are we to do with this in the places that we are grieving? Well, here's a few practical tips. We go back to square one. We cultivate a deeper awareness of, which is an informational thing, and appreciation for the way the world was meant to be, the way you were meant to be. How does that happen? Um, God is a really chatty God. He's very talkative. He is not a tease, and he doesn't hide. He is speaking to you all the time. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is the way the world was made to be. Um, do you see your intake of scripture as more than just kind of, you know, the goal of I did it today or I did it this week? Do you see it as an endeavor of becoming more and more aware and developing a deeper and deeper love for the way it was all meant to be, the original? That's one thing that we do with this. How we cultivate this Awareness of an affection for the way the world was meant to be, not just, through, uh, not just through acquaintance, a deepening awareness and appreciation for, for Scripture, but also through gratitude. The other night, uh, we, um, Anna and I, every other Sunday night, uh, the folks on Shepherd Team, the leaders of this ministry, come over, and um, because it's kind of before Spring River and we had to miss a week, we're like, let's do dinner. And there's 25 people in my house, and there's laughter. And there are people who know each other deeply and trust each other and love each other. And there's stories and there's joking around and there's prayer for each other. There's solidarity. That's what it looks like to name and notice this is the way it's supposed to be. This is a taste of heaven. Having a deepening appreciation for the way it was supposed to be, helps you notice where all the deviations happen and occur. My love for that lowers my tolerance for loneliness and isolation. It makes me uh, more compassionate wanting to move towards people that I hear that's like, I'm having a hard time connecting. Well, what can we do to help? What do you need to do differently? makes me want to move towards that all the more because I know that's not the way it's supposed to be. And that's the other thing is we see, we, we notice, we develop an eye for deviations from the way it's supposed to be and we name those things as grief, as loss, as disappointment. You were led poorly by a pastor, by a youth worker, by a therapist, by a parent. You name that and you grieve it back to God. You lost somebody you love, and you know this was never the way it was supposed to be, and you grieve it back to God. 
We, don't, we stop overlooking these things, but we bring it to the Lord. What are some things I grieve? I, want to, I just want to give you some very practicals to, to prove the point in case you're having trouble tracking. I grieve lots of things. I grieve depression. I've seen it sap the souls and take the hope away from a lot of people I love very dearly. I've seen it make beloved people feel like nobody, they feel like nobody loves them. They feel like God doesn't see them. They are loved. They are pursued. They are appreciated, but they don't feel it. There's no convincing them otherwise. That grieves me that they feel that way and that it is so hard to not feel that. I grieve a culture in too many churches that are driven by anxiety and anger towards the culture and suspicion more than faith and love and confidence. That grieves me. It frustrates me. I grieve decisions that I make. Anna grieves decisions that I make. <laughs> My kids grieve decisions that I make as a 41-year-old who's known Jesus two decades now. I grieve that, that this is still such a, such a speed bump I trip on. I grieve the confusion that sexuality and gender, that surrounds sexuality and gender right now. I grieve the body count that it's stacking up. I grieve the souls it destroys. I grieve the false hope that it offers and never delivers. I grieve that. It, it hurts me to see it. Does it hurt you? Are you grieving? Are you paying attention? What are you grieving? What agonizing gaps between the good that God is for and the bad that has happened in there? If we're not grieving, here's some reasons why we might not be grieving. And I would bet at some level this applies to all of us. If we're not grieving these things, what are we doing? What's happening to the toxins if they're not getting processed by the kidney of the soul? Grief. What, where are they going? A lot of times, they short-circuit into other emotions. I tell all, uh, any couples that I do premarital counseling with, I say, I think this cuts both with guys and with girls, but definitely with the dudes. Uh, lots of times, he'll be angry, and there's a softer emotion like fear or he's scared, or he's sad beneath the anger, and he doesn't know it, but approach him with the softer emotion. You can deal with that better than the, the sharp-edged emotion. Beneath a lot of our anger, are you an angry person? Maybe you're someone who's grieving and doesn't even know it, and you're spinning your wheels because you can't really get anywhere with hot anger, but you can with something like soft, sad grief. Has it short-circuited into, or are the toxins building up and becoming resentment or bitterness? You're just pissed at the world, pissed at God, pissed at yourself all the time. Has it fueled hyperactivity? Get more and more involved in stuff, more and more commitments, more and more busy. Are you too busy to notice them? Do you medicate your griefs and your sadness through some substance or some virtual life? Pete Scazzaro uh, writes and talks a lot about these things. He's the guy who wrote the book, Emotionally Helpful Discipleship. And he said, unless we courageously allow our losses and our griefs to break open our hard hearts, we will project or inflict our unprocessed pain on other people. That's what I meant earlier when I said a soul without a kidney, a soul without grief can't survive long. It's you're going to do something with these triggers, with the mistreatment, with the misunderstanding, with the pain, with the suffering, with the confusion. You're going to do something with it, and it's going to hit the people around you. It's going to hit you. It's going to hit God. 
unprocessed pain and loss gets inflicted on others. What could it do for you if you start paying attention and naming the loss, disappointment, frustration, and grief in your life? What could it do for you? C.S. Lewis wrote a famous book on this called A Grief Observed. He wrote it about a decade after he lost the love of his life and his best friend, his wife. And it really threw him off track. He said, I'd learned about grief my whole life, but now it happened to me. And it took years to catch up and wrap my head around. He wrote this, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It's easy to say you believe a rope to be strong and sound as long as you're merely using it to tie up a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a chasm. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? Grief can demonstrate and prove to even you how real and how near the gospel of Jesus Christ is in your life, in your story. How real and how near and how attentive God himself is to you, wherever you are. Grief can give you that gift if you open it, if you see it as a treasure, if you see it as normal, part of the ideal, if your kidneys get into gear and start processing those pains and toxins. Grief can exercise your faith. Like I just said, this is what normal faith looks like. This is not an anomaly. This is not, if things go wrong, break the glass and read Psalm 137. This is what normal faith looks like. And this is an act of faith, an energetic faith. Grief is not giving up. Grief is not resigning yourself and saying, well, I can't fix this, so whatever. I guess I'll just be down in the dumps. Grief is, super, grief is hopeful. Grief is brutally honest. Grief calls things the way they are. It is anything but giving up. It is a determined leaning into reality, not sticking your head in the sand from reality. And grief can expel, the process of grieving can expel and process toxins like bitterness and vengefulness and hating your enemies and never giving someone a second chance who's hurt you. And that brings us to the last thing I wanted to show you in this psalm. I don't know if you felt a little wince, the last verse Dalton read. If you're like, is he even going to do a segue after the last verse Dalton read before Ben got up and started talking? And you read Psalm, uh, verse 9, verse 8 that led into it. Well, when you read the end of this song, you realize, okay, there must have been something way more to that story behind this song than just they got made fun of and mocked and that God got mocked. Something big must have gone down for somebody to talk to God this way about another person. Happy is the one, or in, 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 a, in Hebrew, right, righteous, justified, is the one who takes the Babylonian babies and smashes them against the rocks. We're going to finish by talking about this. What's going on? How in the world is that in our Bible? And what are we to do with it? 
you already know a little bit about the context of what went on that led to something like that. Uh, you already know from last week and this week, the Jews were conquered, enslaved, captive, and deported to another land. They were the property of Babylon. But how did Babylon conquer its enemies back in that day? Uh, we call it war crimes today. Because there was no Geneva Convention, as if countries follow that. I mean, the Russians are doing a lot of this to the Ukrainians today. People are doing this to people in Yemen today. People are doing this in Sudan and Nigeria today. But this was par for the course, standard operating procedure. You surround a city, you, see, you lay siege to it, and you literally starve the inhabitants until they start dying off from lack of water, lack of food, and disease. When you finally got sick of waiting and you rushed to the place, imagine how upset and impatient all of the invaders are by that point. It's been months, and we're dying out here in the desert sun as we wait to conquer Jerusalem and tear down its walls. So these are angry men not in the mood for playing around, and it is graphic. It is graphic how they brutalized the people that they encountered. Standard operating procedure, war crimes, rape of women and little girls, murdering the warriors and the fighters, the men who are of fighting age, murdering them, and systematically eradicating the next generation of the conquered people, genocide. Pharaoh killed infants. King Herod killed infants. The Babylonians killed infants. Standard procedure. How do we conquer a people? We wipe out the next generation, which is as bad as what the words on the page suggest. Take a baby by the ankles and do that. So what are we to make? What are we to make of this prayer in verse 9? Where this, this follower of God, this worship leader of Israel is praying for God to repay them, to pay them back. They slaughtered our children, so Lord, slaughter their children. First of all, uh, we just notice we're Westerners. Uh, we live in the lap of luxury. We only know wars that happen in other countries to other people. That's not the experience of most people alive today in the world. They know war because it's happening. They know famine because it happened to them. They know political corruption and cartel violence because it's their backyard. And we don't. So this is harder for us to hear than most of our brothers and sisters around the world or in any other generation. So we note that it's hard for us to make sense of this. We note that what, the, what he's praying for is proportionality. Lord, they did this to us. Repay them for what they have done. Not because they made fun of us, kill their babies. He's saying because they decimated our women, our children, our men, our culture, our God, our temple. Treat them according to their evil. He's praying. The psalmist is not saying, we're going to go seek vengeance. He's saying, Lord, we entrust this to you. You bring justice. You bring vengeance. My kids, when, they're, when a fight breaks out, they're three years old, five years old, seven years old, and eight years old, and we tell them, hey, y'all are not equipped to render healthy justice. When somebody hurts you and wrongs you, come and tell mommy and daddy, we're in a better position to bring justice to a situation where you've been wronged. God is in a better position to bring justice and vengeance in a situation where his people have been wronged or you've been wronged. 
He says, entrust that to me. Bring that to me. So what do we do with this? Do we pray this way? No. And the reason that we don't pray this way is because of two things. God is a God of justice. God does not ignore any evil. God does repay us according to our deeds, everybody. Nothing passes by his notice. He is holy and he is just. And he renders every action what it deserves. But part two is he is a God who has voluntarily at his own initiative, without even being asked, stepped in and said, I am willing to be the one who is dashed upon the rocks that you might be the one who lives for another day. Not just that you get a second chance, but that you get to be brought into relationship with him. Reconciled to him, reconciled to other people, transformed into a human being who prays for your enemies, prays for those who persecute you, blesses those who hurt you, forgives those who mistreat you. Never repays evil for evil, but repays evil with good. That's the transformative work that changes this psalm for the Christian. That we have a God who offered himself to be dashed against the rocks in the person of Jesus on the cross, punished for every evil of the people of God and the people of Babylon who repented, that they might walk in life, in intimacy and love, and in relationship with him. So we pray for those who do us wrong. We seek the good of Babylon. We seek the welfare of the place that God has put us. And in doing so, we show them what kind of God we have. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that was a lot. And it feels really removed from the world we live in and the life that we live. So help us. You know every man and woman in the room, pick something, pick something from what we said and bolt it to something in their hearts or their minds so that this psalm comes alive inside of them and changes us. We pray it in your name, amen.